Hello and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and thanks for tuning in. And uh, we're going to talk a little about uh, elections and polling today. Um, as you probably know, we have a little election going on, uh, officially coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, but of course, our, our election has already started with millions of us already casting our ballots. So now that we are uh, essentially in, in the midst of the election, um, that had us thinking about what was it like to vote in the past? And of course, you know, the notion of, of voter fraud or the security of elections has been obviously a, a storyline in, in the last few years, even though there has been very little to no evidence to suggest that the integrity of elections is a real source of concern, uh, at least not domestically. Um, but you know, now that so many of us don't go to a ballot box, I was curious to know what did voting look like in an earlier life stage of our Republic? And frankly, I, I hadn't thought much about this. And I was surprised to learn that for basically the first century of the United States, our elections were out in the open as they were largely at public events. So if you lived in, in a rural area or, or in a small town, uh, you would have voted at a community event, like, uh, like a market or some other uh, event where people would be gathering in town. And in larger areas, you know, uh, cities, election days were, were spectacles that would occur after uh, weeks of, of campaign activity. And election days would entail torchlight parades and various festivities. And basically, for your vote to be counted, you would just step out in front of the crowd, in front of your neighbors, in front of folks in your community, in front of your coworkers or, or boss or whomever. And others in your community would know how you were casting your vote. And you would vote in one of two ways. You would vote by voice or you would vote with a ticket. There was nothing remotely private about the transaction. And the act of voting was really by intention, a very out in the open thing. Um, there was no effort of sort of promoting objectivity or party neutrality. Political operatives were present and they wanted the voter to know uh, which party he, and back then it, it was all he's, uh, they wanted the party, you know, the, to know, they wanted voters to know who the party was that, that they were voting for. Um, and in fact, different parties had different tickets or colored tickets so that there wasn't this tightly controlled process being controlled by, uh, the government or, uh, other bureaucratic, uh, uh, officials. And in, in reading about this, I think an important nuance is that it wasn't until the 1890s that what was known as the Australian ballot, AKA the secret ballot became a thing. And until then, there had been some efforts to reform the voting process, but politics was far more regionalized at the time. And the idea that your vote should be private was just not the obvious or prevailing point of view, uh, far from it. Uh, politics back then was far more communal. And this notion of, of politics being sort of highly personal or individualistic uh, was just not the same as, as what we think of today. Um, but in time, and, and I think this is interesting, particularly as the rise of the industrial revolution started to take hold in the late 19th century, and you had more special interests and private interests on the part of various industries, 
that began to influence politics more directly and the notion of more secretive or voting in private began to take hold. So again, enter via Britain, the Australian ballot, which on its face uh, seemed to improve the process. Um, and so with this transformation, you now had a far more uh, buttoned up system that entailed elections being held indoors, run by government officials in a public building. Instead of competing party tickets, as I mentioned before, there would be a single state produced ballot and the ballot would contain the names of, of all the candidates, uh, including room for write-ins. Um, so the voter would mark their ballot in a private booth and then they would, they would submit it or deposit it. So it, it's interesting to think about what the voting process was like in that more public forum. And I, I think it's fair to speculate a little that, you know, the integrity of the process was probably pretty good, but, you know, the opportunity for peer pressure uh, was clearly there. Um, so kind of an interesting uh, dynamic to think about in the context of how we vote today. And again, a lot of the, the speculation around our, our, our voting process not being um, um, secure. Uh, which again, uh, no evidence really suggests that that's the case. Um, and then the, the other thing to think about, uh, it, it was, there was no polls. So I guess going into an election, you know, whether it was a, a, a you know, national election or, or a local election, um, you were really kind of flying blind on who the hell was going to win the election at, at any level of gov government, um, the field of, of polling is, is relatively young. Um, polling didn't really begin to sort of come into its own as a field until the 1930s. And in fact, um, Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt, uh, President Roosevelt was the first American president to use private polling, and he used it both for election strategy and for public policy. Um, in fact, interestingly enough, he used it, uh, his administration used polling as he considered increasing the size of the Supreme Court uh, to make it more liberal. And that was something that 44% of those polled were opposed to and 41% were in favor. So again, interesting, interesting parallel there. Um, and, and as polling began to take hold and become an increasingly vital asset, uh, whether it be in, in government or in the private sector, uh, there was, uh, as some of you may know, there was this uh, infamous election in 1948 that proved polls have their limitations. And of course, we saw that again uh, just a few years ago in the 2016 presidential election. And with us today to talk a little bit more about that is Lily Rothman from Time Magazine. Uh, Lily wrote an article back in 2016 after the election and after the polls famously got it wrong in their presidential prediction. And she drew on the wonderful archives there at Time. And uh, there was an article back in 1948 uh, about George Gallup. And, uh, of course the, the namesake of the famous Gallup poll and time back then called him the Babe Ruth of the polling profession. And Lily's article from November, 2016, after Donald Trump unexpectedly won the presidency by winning the electoral college was titled how one man used opinion polling to change American politics. So here to join me from time magazine is Lily Rothman. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Hi, I'm happy to be here. 
Well, great. Well, let's let's jump right into it. And uh, you you wrote uh, an article following the uh, the twenty sixteen election, which of course uh, was a bit of a surprise uh, for for the pollsters, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly a name uh, I think most of us uh, know uh, from from polling and is kind of synonymous with the industry, if you will, is is the Gallup poll. Um, who 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 was George Gallup, and and how did he how did he get his start? Uh, yeah. So um, by way of background, my you know as an editor at Time, part of my purview is. Uh, stories using our own archives and uh, George Gallup was on the cover of Time in 1948 and this story um, really exposed a lot of ways in which the polling industry is the same as it ever was and interesting uh, insight into its development. So uh, yeah, I got to take a look back at that moment in time and um, learn a lot about George Gallup in the process. So he was... um, a guy who was born in Iowa in 1901. Uh, he goes to the State University of Iowa and ends up the editor of the school paper there. Um, and he actually ends up, he goes on to study psychology there as a grad student. Um, but what's important to his start as a pollster is that he was the editor of the school paper. And uh, one of the things that he wanted to know as the editor was why people actually read the paper. So what he did was grab a couple copies of the paper and sort of roam around Iowa City and just ask people, what do you like in this paper? What do you not like? Uh, Mm. And he actually ended up using the material that he got from those surveys as part of his PhD thesis. And after he finished school, he got a job working for other papers, doing basically the same kind of survey uh, for them giving them information about what readers wanted, uh, what worked and what didn't work. And this is uh, going into the late 20s, early 30s. He ends up transitioning basically that same work to working for an ad agency instead of newspapers and testing ads, you know, what, what ads work, which don't work, what the viewers respond to. And he's picking up this skill of sort of, analyzing opinion and getting a really accurate picture of uh, the way the American public responds to an idea, whether it's a newspaper article or an advertisement. So, yeah. yeah. And then the 1932 election comes around and he decides to start thinking about whether he could do the same thing for politics. And it kind of starts from there. Yeah, and and I, I think I read, if I recall from your article, something like he 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 realized that the the difference between you know getting an opinion on on you know toothpaste and and politics were were not necessarily that that different, mm-hmm. and um, it seems like the 1936 election was really a game changer uh, for him as an individual, and then ultimately for his organi- organization. Um, what what happened in that 1936 election? Yeah, so at the time, um, the Literary Digest was a publication that ran a really well-regarded, famous poll, um, and that was kind of the standard for uh, for polling of that sort. Um, but Gallup realized that he had this 
insight into um, not just how to ask people questions, but how to make up a representative sample. And he realized that the way the Literary Digest was doing their poll didn't make sense because they were getting a lot of um, data, excuse me, they were getting a lot of data about who to contact um, from car ownership and telephone ownership registration information. And this is the 1930s, it's the Great Depression. A lot of people don't have cars and telephones. So the poll is missing a huge swath of the population. So um, he kind of goes out on a limb and makes this public prediction that the famous poll is going to be wrong. Um, and he didn't get it right either. He was a little off on what the results would be, but he was extremely right about how wrong the Literary Digest poll would be. So after 1936, he's able to say uh, to people he might sell his poll to, hey, look, I was totally right about this thing that the, the trusted source was wrong about, and you should come to me when you want to know what the American people think. Yeah. And, and, and am I right that that then really helps sort of put he, he and his organization on, uh, on sort of a growth track? And, and you know, he, he kind of goes back to his, his roots in, in sort of the, the marketing market research uh, realm. Yeah, well, after 1936, he does all kinds of things. The organization over the next decade just really explodes. Um, so they they keep doing politics, but they're also doing you know pre-release testing for movies. They're doing public opinion polls about all kinds of things. Uh, by the late 1940s, they have more than a thousand people going out, um, you know, across America doing polling. Um, they've developed a new system that, uh, according to Time, was called the quintimensional plan of question design, which asks not just yes or no, but also how much do you know about the thing? Why are you for it? Why are you against it? Uh, they've become really a uh, you know, household name um, because the polls that the Gallup organization conducts appear in papers across the country uh, multiple times a week, you know, or, or he's producing multiple polls a week. Uh, so yeah. they're really, they're really expanding quite quickly after 1936. Yeah, I, I would think that if you've uh, got a gig in the 1930s and 1940s doing uh, polling and, and research work for uh, for the film industry, and uh, and you've got content that's being syndicated in, in newspapers <laughs> that you're probably doing okay, uh, much yeah. less all those all those other uh, streams that you mentioned as well. Um, so so by 1948, um, he uh, he and the Gallup organization, as you said, are, are really widely known, and uh, and as you mentioned, um, he, he's on the cover of, of Time magazine leading up to the the 1948 elect presidential election. And uh, and time calls him the Babe Ruth of the polling profession. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then what happens? Yeah. Uh, so as you said, he's super well known. His his company, which is technically called the Audience Audience Research Inc., um, is their household name. Um, he's becoming almost sort of synonymous with polling. Um, and in fact, there was some concern among you know, people, you know pundits that the polls were getting too good, that they would skew the political process in some way because they'd know too much about 
what people wanted. Um, so that's kind of the environment into which this 1948 cover appears. At the time, you know, we have Harry Truman as the incumbent in the presidential race, um, a Democrat, and the Republican primaries are still going on at this point. And in fact, the eventual nominee, uh, Thomas Dewey, was going through a slump at the time. Um, but then a couple months go by, and uh, I think a lot of people know what happened, which is that everybody thought Dewey was going to win, but Truman did. And that's how you get that famous photograph of Truman holding up a copy of the early early edition of the Chicago Tribune with the banner headline, Dewey defeats Truman, um, when in fact it had been the other way around. Um, so the polls were had been extremely certain about what was going to happen uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, the Democratic vote was supposed to split. Um, Truman was unpopular, but they got it wrong. Um, and so the, there's a big sort of postmortem moment of how could these polls, including the Gallup poll, have made such a big mistake. Um, so I actually went and I checked out um, after that cover story. There was a, a follow-up in November asking this question. Um, and there are a couple interesting insights in there. Um, as for Gallup, he, George Gallup, his approach is to send his pollsters back out to talk to the same people that they interviewed before to try to find where the error came from. Um, he sort of tries to minimize the, the problem. And um, one of his theories is that the error came from undecided voters, that he and a bunch of other pollsters figured uh, the undecided vote would split. So they didn't really follow up with them closer to the election. But in mm -hmm. fact, they must have gone for Truman. Um, and, you know, his business is in you know jeopardy from this, that a bunch of papers cancel their contracts with Gallup. And there's all this talk of people no longer are going to trust polling because here's the proof it doesn't work. Um, and in fact, Time reported that it turned out after the election that some polls had been getting it right, but because the more established polls seem so certain, they kind of discounted their results. Everyone, you know, was thinking, oh, this this must be just a, a fluke that this one random little poll is showing that Truman's going to win because Gallup and everybody else says Dewey's going to win. Um, so you kind of see the the influence in a, a bad way. Um, but obviously Gallup survived and as an organization and uh, the polling industry survived. And here we are many years later with lots of polls. Uh, so 1948 did not end up being sort of the death knell of polling that it was feared that it would be. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting that, you know, as you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago that, you know, so many aspects of polling, it seems, uh, that were put in place in the 20th century, or early 20th century, you know, are really still relevant today. And obviously, you know, um, all these years later in, in 2016, uh, you had, you know, yet another election where, uh, where most of the polls got it wrong. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how uh, things play out with mm -hmm. our, our upcoming election and uh, we'll see how just how right they are, right? Yeah, yes, time will tell. Indeed. Well, Lily, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us and uh, we hope to have you on My again pleasure. soon.
Take Thanks. care. Yeah, you too. Thanks again to Lily for that conversation. And uh, as you could hear, um, uh, I guess, I guess Neat Silver is kind of like the, uh, the, the George, the George Gallup of our times, but, uh, but the Gallup poll was certainly uh, a standard bearer and, uh, and it's certainly a, a, a brand in polling that we all are, are still very familiar with. And um, it was interesting. I, I, we, we went back and, and looked at some of the interesting sort of milestones of the Gallup polls over the years in public opinion. And a few things jumped out to me. Um, again, things that sort of resonate with, with, um, with where, where we are and who we are today. Um, in 1938, there was a, a poll on minimum wage and, um, the minimum, uh, minimum wage law, uh, was enacted with the minimum set at 40 cents an hour and 62% of those polled, uh, thought it should be different for different sections of the country. Um, and then in 1939, um, FDR, uh, considered running for a, um, unprecedented third term, uh, which he ultimately did. Um, uh, but 63% of Americans, uh, disapproved of that decision, uh, for him to, uh, run for a third term. Um, and th this one really was interesting to me in 1945, um, obviously, uh, the year of the end of, of world war II and. Uh, the United States uh, bombing Hiroshima, uh, the public supported helping Japan. 66% uh, of those polled said they would be willing to put up with food shortages in order to give food to people who need it in Japan. And I thought that was um, really kind of kind of cool. Um, and uh, another one, uh, of course, the polio, uh, vaccine, uh, which, uh, came onto the scene in the 1950s, large scale vaccination with the, uh, Salk polio vaccine began in 1954 and about half of the nation, uh, 53% expressed confidence that it would work. Um, so again, interesting, uh, some interesting milestones from the history of the Gallup poll. And uh, given what we're seeing in the polls, I, I think it's fair to say that notwithstanding some really unexpected changes over the next couple of weeks, the president winning re-election would be a new low mark for polling. But hey, it's 2020. And if there's anything we've learned this year, it's that anything is possible. So on that note, go vote if you haven't already. Exercise your right as an American and Feel free to do so in privacy, thanks to the Australian ballot. And uh, that's our episode. So thanks again to Lily Rothman for joining me and be safe and be well. And we'll talk to you soon.